0: Hello, uh, welcome to this episode of Tez Potibodgie. Uh My name's Kate Parker and I'm joined by Kester Burian and Trevor Marshaw. Hello. And uh, we're here to discuss the role that physical movement plays in learning. Um, Kester wrote a brilliant feature for us on uh, the 12th of April. I think that's right. Um, which we'll discuss more as the podcast goes along. So, do you just want to start off by explaining to me um, the research around the connection between the brain and the physical movements of the body when it comes to learning?
1: Yeah, I mean, uh, the reason I pitched the article at TS was because uh, a friend of mine is an anthropologist who uh, had, had sent me a link to uh, uh, an academic article that Trevor had written um, about the ways in which people are processing mathematics. And correct me if I get the summary of this, I want to get this exactly right, but the ways that people are processing mathematical thinking in different ways and particularly in in relation to uh, physical movement in the body and I then started looking at that a little bit more kind of generally and came across uh, this fantastic idea that that people talk about brain is hand and hand is brain and that really struck a a chord with me for for so many reasons but one of them particularly is that I think we are seeing so much reduction in, in kind of dexterous subjects whether that's DT or art or drama or whatever within schools and, it, and that began to concern me in terms of well if that's happening what effect could that be having on uh, the ways in which students are going to be learning now I mean the research is interesting in lots and lots of different ways uh, you've got um, people like Tagtivate who are looking at bringing in physical movement into mathematics lessons and other lessons in, and and you know, reintroducing a, a, a very deliberate physical aspect into learning there and seeing great results in the way that children are engaging and, and particularly in the ways in which children are able to be uh, to begin to problem solve. Uh, and I think that's the fundamental thing. It's not that we become stupid if we only look at screens, but the dimensions to the ways in which we are able to have intelligence and problem solve and think about the world we're in get very much narrowed and reduced if we only process problems through kind of looking at screens and and so on and that so much learning as trevor's work explores is kind of almost like an internalized body focused uh processing that doesn't really sit on a kind of screen interaction Um, So that was the kind of background to it. Trevor, do you want to talk a little bit more about the the piece that that brought me to this?
2: Mm. Um, I I think it's probably interesting to go back a few steps too and talk about um, perhaps the parts of the brain that are engaged when we are acting. But not only when we're acting, when we're watching others acting. when you perform something, when you, when you perform a bodily task, if you do a somersault or you, you, know, you, know, you concentrate on walking a straight line, um, there are a number of different regions in the brain that are stimulated. But um, one that's working very hard in all of this is the motor centers of cognition. And what, um, what brain scans have uh, recently been able to show is that not only are the, those motor parts of the brain being fired, by when the performer is engaged in the task, but also the person watching them perform something is also understanding their movement, not simply in vision mm. or you know, conceptually at some you know kind of a thought level, what is it that they're doing? But in fact, we simulate it and we understand the movement by almost reenacting our the motor centers of our brain fire. And kind of tell us what it's like, to, what, it, what it feels like to do that. And um, a lot of the basic skills that we learn from childhood onwards, physical skills, we watch through watching and learning. And the watching part isn't about kind of just visually processing, but it's taking in that visual information and making it meaningful in a motor way.
1: Yeah.
2: And that that's, that's the real basis of it, that the, the body is continually learning um how to do things and in learning how to do things we better understand how the world works how things are put together how do we solve problems um, so it, the body as the beginning is is absolutely crucial
1: so one of the bits of research i was drawing on uh in in the piece uh, was a thesis called thinking through drawing which uh, was was actually by an architect and i learned earlier that trevor began his work in architecture as well um, where the author says, contrary to the common belief that the vast capabilities of the hands are a result of the evolutionary development of human brain capacity, a more accurate belief would be that the evolution of the human brain is a result of the evolution of the hand. Uh, and that, that kind of suddenly makes sense when you think that when you have small children, what you do is you, you know you sit them down in front of little bricks and it's these kind of fine motor skills that are actually growing the brain and then this kind of symbiosis of of fine motor skills and, and physical movement that, that enlarges the brain and gets the brain sparking in all these different interesting ways. And that then allows us to kind of grow and learn in, in those particular dimensions. So to kind of pull that back to education is if we remove those physical arts uh, and that physical dexterity and the physical movement, there's a number of problems that we are potentially facing. Uh, and, you know, in my own subject in mathematics, you might think, what, you know, I mean, this, this, what possibly... Could there be any point in in uh, having physical movement in mathematics? But what I see to go back to the idea that Trevor was talking about in terms of acting is that students actually reenact the ways in which they solved problems, and it's almost like they are performing stories again that help them to remember how to solve that particular problem. Whether it's a particular dance that they kind of do you know, when they're uh, remembering how to add fractions or whether it's a way of remembering, remembering gradients or whatever. But there is so much more of the body involved in remembering and recalling and putting back together the ways in which we solve problems that it's not just this kind of very abstract, cognitive, sterile processing thing. And the risk is, of course, is that we, you know, we really lose that um, that we just, you know, want kids, right, sit down, shut up, don't move, don't want to hear you, uh, and solve this problem, you know, just on, on screen or click this.
0: I guess it's already having wider implications, isn't it? So in your piece, you know, you talk about the brain surgeons yeah. and that, um, I guess, uh, a lack of textiles at school means that they can't cut and they're not... Yeah. And they don't have those necessary skills so that people are going to jobs and actually they don't have the skills required.
1: So very, I mean, it was just interesting uh, as, a, as a thing, you know, as I was writing and thinking about the piece, this, this uh, piece came on Radio 4 actually and the, the, the brilliantly named Professor Kneebone uh, who is the, <laughs> the head of surgical training for the whole NHS and he was, he was talking about how uh, much of a problem it is now that he has surgical students coming in who don't know how to sew, who don't know how fabric feels and behaves which is you know when you're dealing with skin and flesh that's what you're basically dealing with so he now employs uh, a kind of you know high level artistic lace maker to come and talk to students about how to sew about you know and and ways to restore those kind of fine skills of sewing because as they are lost again the problem is is not just that physical skill of sewing gets lost but the ways in which people are able to think and understand problems from that different point of view and that i think is uh you know my my kind of biggest passion here is that we are going to end up reducing and narrowing the ways in which people can approach problems because they don't have that broad bodily skill to bring to situations would you would you agree with that
2: yes and I think I, I, I would branch it out to kind of another field that I know this is in the field of building um, I came to anthropology as an architect because I was interested in the way that people working on building sites often from drawn plans are able to learn their skills so how apprentice, apprentices acquire their skills on site through watching and practicing and learning and it's uh, it's it's kind of building up a certain set of blocks that they can manipulate later. Mastery is really the ability to play with that skill set in a creative way and produce new things, produce novelty or be innovative or improvise. And um, the whole mathematics thing really struck me. As an anthropologist, I I spent uh, a year working on um, a minaret building site in Yemen Um, I worked as a labourer to understand how the apprenticeship system works. And the best way for me to do it was Mm -hmm. to have a hands-on apprenticeship. And um, it struck me the way that they... The men that I was working with were not literate and they were not mathematically trained. But they were building highly complex structures. The minarets that they were building were almost 60 metres high. There were no plan drawings. There was no architect involved. And there were no engineers. And it was really a kind of a... A trial and error learning that they had gone through in their own apprenticeship under their father that they learned to build these structures higher and more slender over time. But the thing that really interested me is they talked about proportionality. They talked about the aesthetics of proportions. And I remember um, on one building site, one of the master masons, you know, they said, oh, we have to add more meters to this minaret that we're building. And I said, well, why how do you know he said because it looks she she looks like a hunchback old woman all legs no body the proportions are right when they will fill my eye and I thought there's something behind the the fill my eye Mm. where where did he get his what what training did he have the aesthetic training to judge proportion when that minaret was going to look right and so that that kind of set me on a path to trying to understand the mathematics on site and how these, how these builders who are not sitting in a classroom ha- learn a sense of symmetry or asymmetry, of proportion or disproportion, of balance. Um, and these are all mathematical concepts and they're playing with incredibly complex geometries and more than that, they're producing engineering structures. They're working as engineers without a formal engineer's training. And if I just m- might add, over the years, from the time that I was working with them onwards, there, were, there was a, a kind of a proliferation of trained architects and foreign experts and engineers who were coming into this city in Yemen and saying how the conservation and restoration of the ancient buildings should take place. And the, they were de-skilling the masons. The masons were becoming these master masons who had built these things and knew perfectly how to repair them and conserve them, and put them back together. We're being told that well, no, you just have this task to follow, and it's all here on the paper. So these paper masters had basically been involved in the diskilling of these of these masons, and um, if you lose that skill, then you're not you're going to also lose that expertise to continue to maintain those buildings in a creative way in the future. You need problem solvers.
1: So the uh, the kind of link back into into secondary education which is where I'm at uh, and one of the one of the stories I tell in the in the article is that I spoke to our head of art who said that he is facing a problem when he will set up a, um, a still life you know on a, on a table in the art room and ask our students to draw it. Many of them will say, uh, can I take a photograph of it and draw from that Now in a, in a funny way, that's tempting because it means they can work on it at home, you know, they can take it back and all the rest of it. But he says that what they're actually getting at is that they struggle to work from 3D onto 2D. Uh, And they're far more comfortable working 2D onto 2D. And what that means is that he, he is worried that students are less able to feel what the world is actually like how the world really feels and what it you know the, the the kind of touch and the sense and the sense of proportion that you're talking about with these with these minarets and that they don't really have a connection with the world because they spend so much time with it mediated through you know some kind of screen-based technology um you know i i had a situation with with one of my students. He's a really bright student who came to the end of a problem, which was about uh, you know the, the, some kind of long calculation, and and had worked out oh you know the height of this person in this calculation was two point six meters tall. I said, well hold on a minute, you know does that feel right? I had no idea. That's the answer I got. It's what the calculator told me. I said, but but what would that look like in the room? And she didn't know. She didn't realise that two point six meters would be A remarkably tall person who everyone would be kind of going gosh you know they can't fit through the door they'd probably be able to get their head you know they wouldn't be banging their head on the ceiling but so this sense of of do we feel part of the world we're in i think is being lost in schools when we take away the kind of dexterous uh points of access, and, and the reason why they are being taken away is because they're expensive. Yeah. Design technology is expensive. It's far easier to put on a lab of graphical design. It's far easier, uh, you know, to take out the theatre or to, to push kids into other things. But the danger is, I would argue, is that the pursuit of kind of, you know, academic results, in the scare quotes so of, you know, we want the maths and science results to be really high. I think that is a really risky strategy in that you will not see strong uh, creative performance mathematically because students will only be able to think in one linear way and they're not able to bring their bodies and therefore as Trevor was saying a kind of sense of creativity and problem solving through other stories that they've interacted with in the world.
0: It's, It's scary as well isn't it because you think you know with the rise of AI Mm. Uh, you know machines are going to be able to do so much for us that actually what we really need to be skilled in is creativity innovation mm. all those things that do require like you said you know um you know having a broad sense of the world around you yeah and you think that's exactly actually what our children should be should Absolutely. be trained in because machines will be able to do all the linear things. so i was
1: mm. i was uh, giving a talk. Uh, just can can you just build
2: on place. what you said just to... Because <clears throat> sure. I, I think it would fit in well with um, what you were suggesting. I mean, I, I think that there there really is an argument that when children or adults are sensually engaged in yes. making things, they are mathematically engaged in the world. And the nice thing about making and keeping the making of things as part of a school curriculum is that it allows individuals to develop their own strategies to solving problems. Yeah. There, you know, I know from the world of craft work, and it applies in any creative endeavor, there is never one solution to a problem. Solutions are emergent in the context. and. Um, By encouraging young people to explore, to experiment with their hands, engaged with the materials and the tools that they're working with, they come up with their own solutions. And it's when we have our own solutions that we, we kind of, we hold on to the answers kind of in a in a more confident way. They're ours; we own them, Um, and you can move forward with that. And I think too, it's extremely important for children because. They need to be confident from an early age. And mathematics, unfortunately, is one of those disciplines where children lose their confidence most quickly. Um, so the question is, how do we engage them so that you know, they, they feel that they are problem solvers, that they can be creative, that mathematics is part of their lives, part of the world around them, and they can move forward with that?
1: And I think, you know, just to, to summarize that point, um, that, that as you reduce the number of senses you bring to a problem, you know, it makes less sense. And that's what's, what's beautiful about Trevor's work and really opened up to me is that we need to in, it, you know, increase the number of senses that people are bringing to things. Why? Because obviously that enriches the kinds of memory structures that we're then able to bring to things and that when we're then working towards recall, or working on um you know a particular problem we are we're or it's almost like we're drawing on more stories and we have more stories and examples of things like hey you know when i did this or when I did that we have more experiences and more sense of how this might actually emerge and i'm absolutely um sure that andrew wiles you know the famous mathematician who solved Fermat's last theorem, you know, he was very much about that, that he would go for walks, he would do this, he would do other things to try to create an environment within which thoughts and solutions could emerge.
0: And then you've already touched on the fact that, you know, the reason um, why kids maybe aren't being um, as hands-on as, the, as we'd like them to be is because of this kind of uh, high accountability, high exam uh, stakes regime that we currently have. Um, so, you know, a lot of schools would say, you know, well, we can't afford to do th- those things. Our budgets are being squeezed, and the things that we need to concentrate on are getting the kids to pass the exams, passing our offset, you know, all those sort of um, desk type um, activities. So, how exactly do you think that teachers in practice could kind of um, bring this research into their classrooms?
2: I think that as a country, we can't afford not to invest in that. Britain has prided itself for a very long time on its ability to be creative. You know, Things are made elsewhere, but we come up with the designs, we come up with the solutions to the problems and the challenges, and if we want the next generation to continue in that vein, so that Britain remains kind of a leading force in, in innovation, innovative industry, then I think we need to make that investment. There's a long history, too, in this country of kind of just leaving it either to industry to train up people, you know, in the workplace or um, that it's not something that, you know, we need to formally invest in. But we 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 absolutely need to. And I I think we look to um, to countries like uh, Germany or to Switzerland or to France, where vocational education is still very heavily invested in Um, there right now. They're leading the they're leading the industrial way. And uh, Britain needs to find its way back into that.
1: I would, I would totally agree with that. Um, I, I, you know, particularly in my subject in mathematics, there's this big thing like, oh, you know, look at what Singapore does and all the rest of it. And it's like, okay, yeah, you know, Radiohead didn't come out of Singapore. Yeah. Um, they are brilliant at, at so many things, but what, what Britain has been absolutely so, so fantastic at over such a long period of time is this idea of creativity. And that's where we need to, to be pushing um, to make a more general point and then to kind of head into the kind of practical classroom stuff you know um, I, I think the more general point about about that that idea uh, of creativity is that it, it is just so fundamental to, to everything um, that we are doing um, and that you know to lose that will be to radically reduce the ways in which people are able to you know to bring and solve these problems um, but you know Will it be expensive? Yes, it will in a way, but but the the price of not doing it is also going to be very expensive. So that you know, if you think back to to Alan Turing, Turing's famous thing, where where someone said to him, you know, well, uh, you know, will there be a a day when when machines will be able to think and become conscious? And he said, well, you know. If a machine can convince you of that, then then yes, you know. And I see people now; they're talking about AI, and they're talking about well, you know, gosh, look at the robots—they're becoming ever so much more human. And my response is always, yeah. So our biggest problem is that we are becoming more robotic.
0: Yeah.
1: That's the fundamental problem in, as it, you know, in the most general sense, in education is that as humans we are becoming far more robotic in our responses to problems in our responses to testing. In that you know when you're kind of faced with a with a with a um, you know a a situation of austerity it's far easier to be able to do things in a super efficient way where you put homework online and all the rest of it and then you do that so that a computer can market but that then radically changes the kind of homeworks that you can set um, so we end up becoming more robotic if we chase after that particular thing so to get in terms of the classroom stuff there needs to be in a sense a uh, a, a kind of restoration of the humanity of teaching. And that is going to be slightly radical in that it's going to be uncomfortable and that it doesn't generate easily manipulatable data. It's like, what? You know, we're not producing data. What are you doing in there? You know, But returning to that idea of the humanity and of the body within the classroom and helping kids to move around to be able to do those things... But that will also require a little bit of risk. I mean, a few years ago, I would regularly take kids over to a park, which was just across the road, and we'd kind of do measurement and trigonometry and look at trees and all the rest of it. Now, it's just so difficult to do. There's so many bits of paper to fill in to be able to do that. I mean, it's just across the road. So perhaps there needs to be some kind of sense in which we look in terms of legislation about how we able to make classrooms places where bodies can be again.
0: And you, go on.
2: I was just going to... I agree with what Kester's saying entirely. And, um, you know, daily on the news, we hear about how our children, how the younger generation, is suffering both physically and mentally yes. from their constant engagement with the screen in front of them. And um, so... It, Re-engaging young people with physical objects and the making of things isn't just, it's, it goes beyond simply making them good kind of creative problem solvers. It actually re-engages them with the context. It re-emplaces them in the world in which they live. And hopefully it also helps to suture that um, that widening gap that we're experiencing between being human and what nature is. Yeah. But, Reengaging re-engaging with place, re-engaging with context is a part of making good citizens. It's part of making good people. And that has to begin in the classroom.
1: So something I was sent by someone kind of in response to the article I wrote was a, was a quote by a, a guy called Darian Leder, who's written a book called Hands, um, where he says this, what if rather than focusing on the new promises or discontents of contemporary civilization, we see today's changes as first and foremost changes in what human beings do with their hands. I think that's absolutely profound. If you could track, you know, in a kind of some way, what what is it that people have been doing with their hands over the last hundred years? There's been this huge change that we're now hands together, just interacting in very, very small ways rather than in larger ways. And that, if we take the, the kind of, you know, basis of brain is hand and hand is brain is going to change the ways in which children's brains are are developing and functioning we need to be really careful about that so you know the question is can a progressive government you know in the in the world that we're in afford not to be helping schools to allow students to be physically engaged as well and and you know and to reiterate trevor's point which i, I think is this is the the very hook that drew me from his work to write this article. You know that when people are in, in, engaged in their senses, they are engaged mathematically. That they, they are that one and the same thing, which is which is a um, such an important thing for us to grasp.
2: I think in order to do that as well, what Kessler's suggesting is there are two really big hurdles that I see. One is the very popular perception, kind of you know from top down to the household, is that. Um, Doing things on paper, doing paperwork, doing kind of conceptual thinking is at the apex of everything. That's that's where you want to be. Working with your hands is, you know, for the kids that didn't quite make it in the school classroom. And we need to change that. We need to broaden our, our understanding of what knowledge is and what intelligence is. Um, and that there are many ways to be intelligent in the world. And until we're able to kind of establish a new value system, we're going to struggle to get that hands-on learning kind of squarely into the curriculum and have respect for it.
1: One of the other aspects we haven't really touched on so much is is uh, about the kind of mental health crisis. And I know that this week um, is Mental Health again. Awareness Week. Um, and I think what's so fascinating for me is what I see, you know, and again mentioned a lot in the news is how gps are now prescribing things like gardening and cookery and sewing and these you know returning people to physical environments and saying to them look draw yourself away from the from the kind of sterile abstract and get your hands dirty in some kind of uh, physical way whether that be you know needlework or or kind of analog photography or, or gardening or whatever and actually that's incredibly good for us uh i think it's it's, it's quite obvious that this very, very single focus on a particular way of engaging with the world, you know, digitally. And that's not to denigrate that. And, you know, we're not here to say screens are bad. It's just we need to make sure that we are being balanced because yeah. if we don't balance out, I think we are seeing the effects of that in a real, you know, an obesity crisis, a mental health crisis. And I do think those are linked to the ways in which we see our bodies placed yeah. within the world
2: this pleasure in a way that you're talking about of engaging with real things in the world. This was something that I witnessed another long piece of field work that I did was um, training up as a furniture maker in the east end of London at the Building Crafts College. And the majority of the men and women that had joined the fine woodwork course were in fact what I called career changers. They were people that had worked for as researchers at the BBC. Some of them had been in real estate. They had been in all walks of life. Many of them had degrees in higher education. And they found themselves at a certain point in their careers completely frustrated. They were no longer they were no longer engaged with the things that they had gone into their profession for. And they found themselves increasingly distanced from what they wanted to do by the administration, by the bureaucratic tasks. And um, so a lot of them wanted to find themselves again, find kind of a, a way of being authentic to themselves by working in projects where they started with the materials, perhaps even sourcing the materials, so in that case the timber, by understanding the tools that they were using, by designing with purpose and function what it was they were going to make, seeing every stage through, and then those who were aspiring to continue as carpenters later on, to see that object into the world, to see it to somebody's home where it would be used, where if it's well made, it would even be passed on as an heirloom. And all of that, from, from, from choosing the wood to the design to the making and constantly problem solving at the bench, they were always mathematically engaged. It was just part and parcel of the. If you would have said to them, what kind of, what kind of maths are you doing now? They would have looked very puzzled. But in fact, they were solving problems all the time. And the mathematics, gave them a chance to find that pleasure that satisfaction because they were conquering things at the end of the day they could look at something on their workbench and say "I finished that or I made that and I think um, that's the other that's the other thing that we, we really need to um, to somehow try to reevaluate in our society is the importance of pleasure and satisfaction in the work that we do yeah and that it's not always quantitative in data but it needs to be qualitative as well yeah
1: we uh, you know there's a there's a sense in which uh, you know, from that kind of philosophical angle that our, you know, we shape our tools and our, our tools then begin to shape us. And I think that's such an interesting thing for, for teachers to think about. And for those who want to, you know, go a little further in that. So uh, Heidegger's work, The Question Concerning Technology, which is, you know, it's nothing to do with digital tools because it's written in the 1950s, but he's talking about the ways in which tools and technologies actually affect the way that we are. Now, uh, my reading of it is, is that you know, he says that all technologies do two things. They all perform an act of revelation. That when you pick up a tool, it reveals the world to you in a new way. So whether that's a fine chisel, it allows you to do certain things. Whether that's you know, Google's glasses, they, they, you know, they are literally revealing the world to you in a new way. And, and the example that Heidegger gives is that you know, for someone trained in, in mining, they see the physical environment in a different way. They're like, whoa, you know, it's revealed to them as a source of minerals. this he says, so, okay, all tools do an act of revelation, but they also do another thing, that all tools then inframe you and in that they kind of lock you into only being able to see the world in that way. So, you know, the kind of popular way this people talk about this, to the man with a hammer, everything, sorry, to the man with a hammer, everything looks like a nail. <laughs> You're kind of... Uh, narrowed down into seeing the world in that particular way. Now, of course, the, the point about that in terms of education and what we're doing within schools is that in order to create interested, creative and broad and balanced and healthy children, what that means is they need to be exposed to multiple tools because that gives them multiple revelations of the world in different ways. But it also means that they are not then left inframed by only being able to use particular tools to solve particular problems and for many children the problem is that they look at a problem and go well is there an app for that and well, wait a minute you know is there some other way is there some other experience is there some other discipline is there some other mode of being that could impinge on that in terms of being able to problem solve that in a different way and we do risk reducing our world down if we don't help students and give them opportunities to use a multiplicity of tools in a multiplicity of senses
2: and that multiplicity of tools too i mean becoming conversant with different kinds of tools yeah. also allows the next level of creativity it allows individuals to in fact repurpose tools and to make tools their own it's fascinating I was going through um, the toolbox of an old carpenter their tools had been shaped by them they've they've Fixed their um, their plane to. They've adjusted it to work with their body. It also it's imprinted with their hand. They're worn in certain ways that tells us something about them as practitioners. So the body and the tool kind of grow together. Um,
1: and to root this back in, you know, as I say, in secondary education, kids are always asking me, "Oh God, you know, why are we learning simultaneous equations? When am I ever going to use this?" And my response is always is always the same. Look, you know, we are not here to train you into a particular role. What we are here to do is to give you a broad suite of languages, by which we mean tools and skills through which you can then engage in the world. So look, you know, you're probably never going to have to talk about Lady Macbeth again, but you are doing something in English, which is not, you know, it's not going to help you in a specific job necessarily it might do but then in geography you're using other tools and you're using other things and if we reduce all of those down to a series of online learning experiences we really really radically alter the ways in which students are then able to go out from there and use those multiplicity of tools so you know the the, the other side of that is then What happens when you kind of cross-purpose tools across it? What happens when I bring the maps up from geography and we we, we look at those in a different way? Or what happens when uh, we start looking at photography from a mathematical point of view? What happens when people start looking at history but crossing that over with languages and with DT? That's what we're there to do in schools. We are there to broaden and to keep things rich over a whole range of languages and tool sets. And my worry is that because money is so tight... The risk is that austerity reduces this down to a set of very efficient screen-based modes of learning. And that, I think, in the end, is going to be very costly.
0: Well, let's hope the government listens to this podcast Mm. and maybe funds um, some more vocational education, like you said. Um, That's everything, really, unless there's anything that either of you two think that we haven't covered or that you'd like to add.
2: Just to add, uh, just one thing that I would add to this whole um, austerity drive... um, on top of that, there's also there's a there, there are there's a new breed of masters who are um, running educational institutions, whether it's a secondary school or whether it's a university, and these are people generally chain, trained in management um, who are enamored by efficiency and cost effectiveness and data, as you brought yeah. up much earlier. So. It makes the task so much easier if everything can be quantified, measured, and then compared and contrasted. And in that, we lose the quality of education.
0: Okay, brilliant. Thank you so much for joining me. And
1: um, thank you for listening. Thank Thank you.